KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, the ideological roots of the January 6th insurrection go back decades before Trump entered politics, back to the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1995. Jeffrey Tubin will explain. His new book is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh in the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Also, we have a conversation with Margot Jefferson about her memoir, Constructing a Nervous System. Her earlier memoir, Negroland, won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and before that she won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism for her work as book and arts critic for the New York Times. Constructing a Nervous System is out now in paperback. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we need to talk about the debt limit deal that Biden negotiated with Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The United States is going to run out of money on Monday unless Congress acts before that. We are speaking now on Wednesday afternoon and we expect the House to pass this bill Wednesday night so that on Thursday the crisis will be over. Of course, we might be wrong about that, but we're going ahead on the assumption that this is going to work. And the fact is a lot of our friends are unhappy with this deal because there's nothing in it to raise revenues. It's entirely about cutting spending. Uh, Biden agreed even to cut the increase in IRS funding for tax collection. So this deal will actually make it harder to pay the debt. Under the deal, military spending will grow, but there will be cuts in education, housing, infrastructure, and health. For a lot of people, the worst part is Biden's agreement to make life harder for poor people by changing eligibility for food stamps and for the cash welfare program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. TANF is the acronym for the uh, welfare program. TANF. By adding work requirements to, to both, virtually every study has shown that work requirements for these benefits do not lead to people getting jobs. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities said the changes would cut benefits for hundreds of thousands of older people. But you say this deal that Biden negotiated is about the best progressives could have hoped for. Well, you know, this is the result fundamentally of the Democrats losing the House last November, uh, because once you agree to negotiate on the debt limit, that gives Republicans uh, more power than they otherwise would have to start slashing things. By the way, one saving grace of the bill is that it does require the House to pass appropriations bills, uh, which puts a real limit on you know their ability to slash stuff. If they don't pass them, as is often the case in Congress, uh, the budget reverts to what it is uh, now. And so even the defense increases, which are part of the debt ceiling deal, uh, would, would not exist. Once you agree to negotiate, you're giving a modicum of power to the uh, jerks who uh, are populate the uh, Republican congressional delegation. Uh, and the, the name of the game becomes, is there anything you can get in return? And can you limit the damage? Tell us how you think the damage was limited here. 
Well, there's a huge difference between this deal and the deal that the Obama administration cut with the Republican Congress in 2011. The, the main difference, and it's a huge difference, is this. The Republic, that deal placed a cap on government spending for 10 years. Mm. Uh, and what that meant was it really slowed the recovery from the 2008 crash and it, you know, really screwed up the lives, particularly of young people who were dealing still with, you know, eight, nine percent unemployment uh, in the middle of uh, the, the teens. This deal only has a two year spending cut on it. That is, you know, what Joe Biden learned, what you shouldn't do from the <laughs> 2011 deal that he was party to, though not the you know lead instigator of. That was the Obama administration as a whole. So that is its main saving grace. The other saving grace is that a lot of these cuts can be jiggled with, as we've seen, to minimize the damage. Just today, the Congressional Budget Office said that because the cut in eligibility for childless adults uh, for food stamps and TANF, there already are limits. You can't, you, you know, if, if you're 18 to 49, there, there already are, you know, real limits on that. And this raised the age to 54. But it also gave a right to uh, veterans and homeless people and uh, uh, young people coming out of foster care to have that. And the CBO today said, well, you know, that means it's not really a cut. It, it keeps the level of spending, you know, the same. It just, you know, rules some people out and rules some people in. That's not an argument for but it's emblematic of the kind of thing the Biden people finessed you know, in the course of the negotiations. I have some other trouble with some things in the, uh, that they came out with. Tell us about those. What are your problems well, the, here? The, the, the main one, uh, a lot of people thought there would be a deal on permitting. Now, the only thing that got permitted was Joe Manchin's damn pipeline. <laughs> yes. uh, but there is a real crisis in uh, electricity transmission. You can't move wind power and solar power through a pipeline. You need electric transmission lines. And the, the permitting process for these major electric transmission lines is eternal. There was uh, one project bringing uh, wind power from Wyoming to California that just got approved after 18 years in, uh, in gestation with appeals and what have you. So a lot of Democrats were hoping that there would be a real simplification of the permitting process, but uh, th there's, there's none of that in, uh, in, in the bill. The fact that there's nothing there is a major deterrent from moving wind and solar power so that it could light up distant cities and farms and what have you. I, I am severely disappointed at that. Heather Cox Richardson points out what Biden has accomplished Despite these uh, cuts, um, the American Rescue Plan gave the United States a faster economic recovery from the pandemic than any other major country. The so-called bipartisan infrastructure law has already funded something like 32,000 projects already in more than 5,000 communities in all 50 states. The Inflation Reduction Act made the biggest investment in addressing climate change in our history. The Chips and Science Act has attracted over 
$220 billion in private investments in high tech, a lot of it going to Republican um, states like South Carolina and Georgia. And for working people, the Democrats under Biden reversed the widening income gap between wage earners and upper income professionals, been growing for the last 40 years. The pay of those uh, making an average of $12.50 an hour grew by almost 6% from 2020 to 2022, even after inflation. So he does have some genuine achievements. Some would even call them historic. I would call them historic. You know, when you, re when you reel off those statistics and about how many infrastructure projects and how many uh, electric car fact electric battery factories and things like that have sprung up, we're on, to use a historic metaphor that not everyone will follow, uh, we're on Harry Hopkins territory here. This is the government intervening in the economy to boost it at a level <clears throat> that we, in peacetime, that we haven't seen since the New Deal. And that's a huge achievement. And but, to make it more egalitarian, as, as, Heaven, as Heather Cox Richardson emphasizes, and I, in addition to her statistics about workers making $12.50 an hour, uh, I would point out that currently the level of Black unemployment is the lowest uh, since the government began surveying this about uh, 45 years ago. It's, a, it's a, real, a real pretty solid record of achievement there. But, and of course, there's lots of buts. <laughs> Always. But <laughs> Biden's progressive critics say he didn't need to negotiate with the Republicans at all. The one strategy was to invoke the 14th Amendment. Section four of the 14th Amendment says the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. And Biden has talked intermittently about trying this. Um, the Washington Post on Wednesday said, uh, quoted him May 21st saying, my hope and intention is when we resolve this problem, the current debt limit, I'd find a rationale to take it to the courts to see whether or not the 14th Amendment is, in fact, something that will, would be able to stop this constant reiteration of, of this problem. He didn't have to wait to test this. He could have done it now, and that would have put a lot more pressure on the courts to actually endorse it than if it's some hypothetical that he brings up next year or something. That's true. And here we get to an assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of Joe Biden as president. To do that, he would have had to make a real formal, but also very effective speech, and then follow it up with more such on the topic. He would have to, you know, sort of change public thinking and change public discourse through, uh, through talking to the American people. That is not Joe Biden's forte. He has never made a speech, although he's made some good ones, but he's never made a speech at a level that has actually changed what people think. Uh, Abraham Lincoln did that, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt did that, and not for better, but for worse. I think Ronald Reagan did that once or twice as well. Uh, that's not who Joe Biden is. What Joe Biden can do as an old Senate hand and who in the Senate was more of a workhorse than a show horse was, you know, uh, reach out to a, a range of other elected officials, not burn bridges, uh, and cut deals which may have little subtleties in them that mitigate some of the worst aspects of them. So uh, compare and contrast Biden 
and his Democratic predecessor, Barack Obama. Obama was a really seriously good orator, and he made a lot of compelling speeches on morally morally charged topics. And I think he got very higher ratings for that than ultimately his presidency deserved because the politics of his presidency and the appoint, appointments he made were well to the right of Biden's. And, you know, the difference between the two is the difference between the 2011 debt crisis agreement and the one that's, uh, you know, being voted on as we more or less as we speak. Biden is a better deal maker and comes in with a better team uh, than Obama ever did. And Obama, you know, certainly could sell things that Joe Biden can't. So, there, you know, as, as I said in a piece we posted at The Prospect on Tuesday, you go to war or not with the president you have. And one other big but, the whole thing could have been avoided in the last lame duck session when the Democrats still held the majority in the House. They could have passed a clean increase in the debt limit, or they could have passed a law that abolished the debt ceiling forever. And Chuck Schumer told Biden that the votes were there, at least for approval of a new debt limit. But Biden said that would be, quote, irresponsible. What do you make of that? Well, that that is the real downside of being a, uh, a you know, an almost four decade uh, veteran of the Senate, which is uh, you have a rather set and unchangeable mindset of what is what is proper, even though the ground rules of American politics in no way resemble the ground rules when Joe Biden was starting out or even in the middle of his senatorial tenure. So, uh, yeah, that was a mistake. And uh, hopefully it's not the kind of mistake the Democrats will make again, but you wouldn't bet uh, your life savings on that. So as we speak on Wednesday afternoon, I said, we expect this bill to pass the House. Then, of course, it goes to the Senate like all, all bills. Marjorie Taylor Greene supports this bill. Ron DeSantis has come out against this deal. Can we be confident it will pass? Oh, I'm confident it will pass. I mean, it only needs uh, nine Republican senators out of the 49 who are in the Senate uh, to clear the 60 vote cloture bar. Uh, and I, I'm absolutely confident of that. But, I, but, you know, the Senate gives individual senators the power to gum up the works. Uh, they can delay things and such. And therefore, you would almost expect that Rand Paul will uh, will try to do that. Maybe Ted Cruz will try to do that. And, and, and someone like Cruz is really, at that point, kind of the representative of, of pretty much all the Republicans running for president. There's no penalty to posturing to the far right in the Republican Party, because that's who votes in Republican primaries. So, you know, I think there there will be some moves to delay it. I don't think, you know, I I, I think Mitch McConnell will find a way around the Rand Pauls uh, to get it to Biden by, by Monday, which is the deadline date. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. Starbucks closed its all of its Ithaca locations a year after workers unionized. The now unemployed Starbucks employees of Ithaca say the fight is far from over. They are now running a campaign to pressure Cornell University to divest from Starbucks. 
this is not the first time a major national employer has decided to close its operations in an area rather than allow union uh, unionization. Right. Well, famously, there was one uh, Walmart in Texas that had a, a meat market in it, and the butchers voted to go union. How many butchers were there? I, I think it was fewer than 10. Yeah. Uh, uh, Walmart's response was to close all meat departments in every Walmart in Texas and in the six surrounding states. So, you know, that's you've got a fly on the wall and you uh, you kill it with a, a, a howitzer. And there's so there there is definitely a, tra a tradition there. And, uh, you know, Howard Schultz is uh, has become our, our the 21st century version of Sam Walton when it comes to uh, just uh, pathological opposition to any degree of worker power. And now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Minnesota, the Minnesota governor vetoed the gig worker minimum pay bill that the state legislature passed this week and that we celebrated on this program last week. Governor Tim Waltz vetoed a bill that would have provided a minimum wage and other protections for Uber and Lyft drivers. Uh, at least $1.45 per mile they drive with a passenger and 34 cents a minute, and it would have established a review process letting drivers protest when they were deactivated, i.e. let go, fired by Uber and Lyft. Waltz sided with the arguments of Uber and Lyft that the, this minimum pay was too high for a place like Minnesota, and Uber said, it would pull out of Minnesota at the beginning of August if the bill passed. So we seem to have another case here of a maniacal uh, opposition to unions and with effective political pressure in a liberal state. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is uh, your, your basic playbook for almost every American corporation, uh, which is why we need labor law reform and, uh, you know, the kind of aggressive worker defenses we have seen from uh, Biden's appointees in the Labor Department at the NLRB. And I want to point out, since this has not been widely covered, that on Tuesday, Jennifer Abruzzo, the general counsel of the NLRB, uh, told uh, all of the NLRB attorneys around the country that uh, non-compete agreements, which you know keep workers from moving to, from one job to another, probably violate the National Labor Relations Act, and they should... Uh, bring cases uh, to test that. So uh, there, there again, uh, we have some pro-labor activism from the administration, and it's the kind of thing that is needed times 10 if workers are to regain uh, you know, a modicum of power. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It's been 28 years since the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1995, carried out by Timothy McVeigh, killed 168 people, including 15 children in the daycare center. 
There's a direct link between that event and the insurrection of January 6th. That's what Jeffrey Tubin argues in his new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Tubin is the author of many bestsellers, including The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. We talked about it here. We reached him today in Manhattan. Jeff Tubin, welcome back. Hi, John. Well, let me start by listing the ways the Oklahoma City bombing was different from the January 6th events. It was not an attempt to overturn a presidential election. It was not an attack on the Capitol building or on Congress. It was not instigated by a defeated presidential candidate. And it was not a mass event involving thousands of people fighting the police for hours. Nevertheless, you do make a convincing case about the direct links that make January 6th, in your words, the culmination of the principles and tactics of Timothy McVeigh. Tell us about those links. Well, the, the links are really ideological. McVeigh was motivated, above all, by an obsession with gun rights and what he called the Second Amendment, his understanding of the Second Amendment. And if you look at right-wing violence in subsequent years, including January 6, 2021, the fixation on gun rights is, is a constant among them all, as is the belief that violence is an appropriate way to achieve political change. And the third thing that, that is a link, and one that was, to be honest, quite you know, somewhat of a surprise to me, was a persistent desire to identify with the American Revolution, that uh, McVeigh uh, had memorized the Declaration of Independence, not just the famous part at the beginning, but the parts where uh, Thomas Jefferson outlined his grievances against the king of England. And if you look at um, January 6th in particular, you see this continuing attempted association between rebellion against an evil federal government with rebellion against an evil kingdom from across the Atlantic. So those are just three of the examples of, of the ideological links between McVeigh and the January 6th people. A key part of your book, Homegrown, is your revelations about the trial and what was left out or what was misleading in the trial. It portrayed Timothy McVeigh as a lone wolf, and you show that, in fact, he wanted to start a movement which today seems extremely important. Uh, why was that left out of the prosecution case, and who made that decision? Well, uh, one of the protagonists of Homegrown is, uh, is Merrick Garland. Um, who at the time was a senior but not very top Justice Department official, who was assigned supervision of the Oklahoma City bombing case. Uh, one of the odd, interesting facts that I learned is that he actually wanted to try the case, but uh, his boss wouldn't let him because she wanted him to take charge of the Unabomber investigation, uh, which was floundering at the time, before, well before the arrest of Ted Kaczynski. But um, Garland had a uh, particular aversion to what was going on in the O.J. Simpson criminal case, which was unfolding at precisely the time of the Oklahoma City bombing. And he wanted the, the McVeigh prosecution to be very different. He wanted it to be very much lower profile, very much focused on the evidence. He didn't want any celebrity worship involved. And uh, he was the person who uh, really urged the prosecutors 
to keep the case very narrowly tailored to the precise evidence against McVeigh and Terry Nichols, uh, his co-defendant. I don't really fall Garland for that. You know, that given what his obligation was at that time, uh, I think uh, that that was an understandable decision. However, I do think that has informed his extreme reluctance as attorney general to talk about the larger threats involved. So Merrick Garland wanted to keep this as narrow as possible, but there was another person who wanted to look at the big picture. And that was Bill Clinton. I was fortunate to interview President Clinton for this book. And before I uh, interviewed him, I had, dis- I-, I had interviewed people who had seen him uh, in the Oval Office on April 19th, 1995, you know, in private before, before he made any public statement about, about the bombing. And, and one thing that really shocked me was that at a time when a lot of people, including many people in public, were uh, assuming that the bombing was the product of Islamic radicalism, Clinton was saying privately, no, 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 I know who did this. It was the militias. And so when I interviewed Clinton, I said, how did you know? And he said, I knew them from Arkansas. And he went through chapter and verse about his 12 years as governor and how many times he dealt with violent right-wing extremism from uh, Arkansas-based extremists. And it was completely fascinating to me. And I then uh, checked it, checked out everything he said, and it did, it did check out as true. And, and uh, that, to me, was you know, just an extremely important signal that Timothy McVeigh did not come out of nowhere. He was part of a movement. And uh, that movement predated the Oklahoma City bombing, and it has postdated the Oklahoma City bombing. Who was Timothy McVeigh before the Oklahoma City bombings? You show he had a kind of unhappy childhood, but lots of people have had unhappy childhoods. Well, that's the thing about McVeigh is that, you know, you can point to various aspects of his background. Uh, He came from outside Buffalo, where his... um, his father worked for 30 years at a GM plant. His grandfather worked at the same GM plant for 30 years, but that plant was shrinking almost to insignificance when, when McVeigh was growing up. So he grew up with you know, economic uncertainty and dislocation. Uh, he joined the army. He was a very good soldier, but he washed out of um, Green Beret School where he, he wanted to you know, make it to special forces and he didn't. His parents had a rancorous divorce. Um, He was not successful with women. All of these factors were, I think, part of what uh, led him to be the terrorist he turned out to be. But they are also true of millions of other people. He was not uh, unique in any of these in any of these ways. But some switch flipped and he turned into someone whose grievances, while fairly ordinary, turned violent, which was not ordinary. And you say that his ideology should not be described as anti-government. Why is that? Well, uh, the, the, the Rosetta Stone of his ideology was a novel called The Turner Diaries. And he, start, he read it as a teenager and read it over and over again. And what that novel portrays is uh, a, a federal government that has been taken over by blacks and Jews And the first thing they do is pass a law called the Cohen Act, which mandates the removal of all private firearms from from individual hands. And as a result, Earl Turner 
the um, protagonist and narrator of the book sets off a truck bomb by the FBI building in Washington, which kills hundreds of people. McVeigh very intentionally used the, the Turner Diaries as uh, a model for, for the Oklahoma City bombing. And that grievance, especially about gun rights, uh, was at the center of his belief. September 14th, 1994, was the day that Bill Clinton signed the assault weapons ban. And that was the triggering, intentionally use that word, factor for McVeigh and Nichols to begin final preparations of building the bomb. Gun and, rights were central to his beliefs. And McVeigh saw his attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City also as a response to the FBI attack on the Branch Davidian compound outside Waco, Texas. On April 19th, 1993, uh, the FBI ended a standoff uh, with this uh, religious extremist compound in uh, outside Waco. The, the Branch Davidians was the group, David Koresh was the leader. Um, the, the FBI fired tear gas in um, to this day, there is some dispute over what exactly happened at that point, uh, whether the people inside triggered the conflagration. In any case, there was a horrible fire. 76 people in, were, were killed. And McVeigh thought that was um, a perfect symbol of the evil of Bill Clinton's federal government. And that's why he did the bombing precisely two years later uh, in, in Oklahoma City. And Waco today has not been forgotten. Right. Donald Trump gave the first big rally of, of, his, re, of his 2024 campaign at a rally outside Waco. You know, Waco has become a, a battle cry of the people who believe the federal government, including the FBI, are fundamentally evil. And Trump it was very clearly associating himself with that movement by holding the rally there of all places. You said that um, Timothy McVeigh was obsessed with guns and gun rights. And with 1776, I learned from your book, there was a bunch of other things he was mad about. Immigrants, women, uh, what had happened to the economy of Buffalo? Let's talk about those things. You know, it, it's all of a package and it's all very familiar. It's racial resentment against uh, affirmative action. McVeigh thought that he didn't get promotions in the army and he didn't get a job in Buffalo because the because uh, black people had gotten there ahead of him. Uh, he was appalled at the prospect of women in the in the military. He thought they weren't up to it. He was also uh, rejected by women in terms of his romantic life, and I think today would be described as an incel, involuntary celibate. It, so if you look at his um, ideological profile, it's so similar to Dylan Roof, who uh, attacked the, uh, the church in, in, in South Carolina, um, the, the terrorists who attacked the Walmart in, in El Paso, the grocery store in Buffalo. This is a worldview that is very familiar to us, sadly, and it's no coincidence that they are all ideologically aligned. And you say for Timothy McVeigh, there was one media source above all that got him interested in all of these issues. 
he was a ditto head. He, he was a Rush Limbaugh fan. And uh, one, one of the amazing aspects of this story was McVeigh had this incredible ability to take long, long drives uh, across the country. He would go from Buffalo to Michigan, where Terry Nichols lived, to Arizona, where his friend, uh, where his friend Michael Fortier lived, to Waco, where he, he, he watched some of the siege, to his sister in Florida. He drove all over the country and he always had three hours of Rush Limbaugh. And if you look at the way he expressed himself in letters during this period, uh, it, it was right out of the Limbaugh phrase book. And I also learned from your book that McVeigh wanted the Oklahoma City bombing to set off a broad rebellion that would overthrow the federal government. And you quote him saying, I believe there is an army out there ready to rise up, but I haven't found it, close quote. What's changed since 1995 to bring this army together? Well, th this to me was the central difference. We've talked about the similarities, but the difference between McVeigh of 1995 and the extremists of today. McVeigh had no mechanism, no ability to find other extremists. He'd go to gun shows. He tried to talk to people. He sold the Turner Diaries. It wasn't efficient. He didn't have the personality for it. But what's different is the Internet and social media. You know, what, what prompted me to write this book, John, which got me interested, I had covered the McVeigh and Nichols trials back in 1997, so it had always been rattling around my head. But in October of 2020, that was when the FBI arrested the plotters to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan. And I saw that they were uh, affiliated with the Michigan militia, which was the same group that Terry Nichols, the co-defendant, uh, had been affiliated with in Michigan. And I said, I know these people. I know what they believe. And that was the first of the connective tissues that, that I discovered between McVeigh and uh, the current day. The internet is one huge change since then. There's one other one, which was September 11th, which of course made it seem like it was Islamic extremists that were the biggest threat to the United States, not domestic terrorists. What happened after 9-11, and, and look, given the magnitude of 9-11, it's, it's not surprising that it had a major impact on American life. But both by accident and very much by design, uh, people began to see terrorism as exclusively an Islamic phenomenon. And that was that, of course, was never true. But um, there was certainly an effort on the right to distract people from the persistence and danger of right wing terrorism by pointing at, by, by trying to argue that it was all uh, Islamic. And uh, the epilogue to, to Homegrown really spells out how many Republicans tried to tried to pretend that right wing terrorism doesn't exist. And at the same time, showing that it was very much still present in American life. Well, bringing it up to the, the present, there have been a lot of complaints about Merrick Garland for the last couple of years that he's been too slow and, and too timid in pursuing the January 6th crimes. But, but now uh, we've seen that his prosecutors have convicted the leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on the charge of seditious conspiracy, a really serious charge. That is big. 
It, it is big. And 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 I, I want to be very clear about what I think about Merrick Garland. I, I, I think the substance of what he has done has been very impressive. You know, they, they've prosecuted almost a thousand people, uh, including some, as you point out, on various serious charges. I'm a former federal prosecutor myself. I know that complex cases take a long time to put together. So I'm not prepared to criticize Merrick Garland for failing to prosecute the higher ups in the January 6th conspiracy. Let's see what happens. That investigation is very much ongoing. The nature of my criticism is that Garland has not used the bully pulpit of attorney general to talk about the threats that right wing extremism presents. You know, he has he is someone who believes that the Justice Department should basically only talk in a courtroom. And I don't think that's correct. I think it is important to point out the magnitude of the threat the country faces from the right. Um, he, he has alluded to it. Uh, Chris Ray, the, the director of the FBI, has alluded to it. But this is a real threat. And I think um, it, it's incumbent upon the attorney general to keep talking about it as well as keep prosecuting it in the courtrooms. And finally, one of the most impressive things about your book, uh, Homegrown, is the in huge amount of information you learned about Timothy McVeigh, much, much more than was ever revealed in the trial. How were you able to do this? Well, this was a, uh, a very odd thing that happened. Stephen Jones, who was McVeigh's lead lawyer, donated every scrap of paper, 635 boxes, from his defense of McVeigh to the Briscoe Center at the University of Texas. Uh, he took a big tax deduction. Um, that All of that uh, material included all of his interviews with McVeigh and all of his legal strategy memos. Now, I don't think you have to be a lawyer to, to have some questions about whether that is an appropriate thing to do because of client confidences, because of the attorney-client privilege, which it is clear out, outlasts the death of the client. McVeigh was executed in 2001. And, and frankly, I do have some misgivings about whether uh, it was appropriate for Jones to do that. However, as a journalist, I was thrilled to take advantage of that decision. And so um, there was this enormous amount of material, which also included all the information that had been turned over by the federal government in discovery. So had all the FBI interviews. It is a rich, rich trove of information. And that was uh, a principal source uh, for me in Homegrown. The story of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995 is not just a glimpse of the past. It's a warning about the future. Jeffrey Tubin's new book is Homegrown. Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeff, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Margot Jefferson about her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir. Her earlier memoir, Negroland, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2016. We talked about it here, about growing up in Chicago in a world of black respectability and then going to college in the black power era. 
Before that book, she had won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism for her work as book and arts critic for the New York Times. And she's also written for The Nation magazine. Margot Jefferson, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to return. Well, you wrote in Negroland, that's the world in which you grew up, that one of its foundational principles was you don't tell your secrets to strangers, certainly not secrets that expose error, weakness, failure. Seems like with this new book, you have left Negroland forever. Uh, right at the beginning, you're already telling us about your workaday monster. This is a stunning passage where your monster tells you that you are a coward in work and love and that it's time to blame your dead parents, but that to do that, you must be nuanced. You must be literary. What was it like to write those parts, to tell secrets about weakness and failure to strangers, to violate your parents' principles? Well, you know, I had done some violating in Negroland. My father had died by the time I started writing Negroland, but my mother's feelings were mixed. She would supply me with stories and anecdotes. And, you know, so a part of her, the um, the waggish <laughs> literary part was very interested in all of this. So I thought I will take these liberties, but in any case, here I am alone in the world. In that way, an orphan who's an adult. Um, it was... Mm, difficult, but also, but it was exciting um, because once you identify, name something you call a monster, you know, you've, you've entered non-realistic territory and your imagination gives your emotions license, you know. So I thought, all right, um, and it, it's a code, you know, it's a series of metaphors, so it's, it's fine. And it, um, I, the thing that I, I suppose I've, I still dread about um, self-revelation is self-satisfaction, uh, exonerating yourself somehow <laughs> by some means or another when nobody else gets exonerated or excused. And I, I wrote that and I tried to write it, and I think I did in a way that pointed the, the ironies, the um, tiny little... Um, self-indulgent hypocrisies, um, but but necessities also, emotional necessities that pointed them out um, and made them into a story, you know, um, a dialogue, a scene. And, you know, that old trope of the of the second self, you know, which the monster is in a way, it's amazing how flexible and fluid that one still is. Well, most of the book is not about your monster. There's many exhilarating parts, like uh, you and your sister doing Ike and Tina. It's 1961. You were 13. Were you Ike or were you Tina? Well, I was both the Ikeettes initially, and then I really had to step in and be Ike. <laughs> and my sister was claiming Tina. Um, so I, you know, I, I had to work with that as best I could. Uh, all of us um, were thrilled by their music and every girl, you know, was enraptured by Tina. But since she claimed her, you know, <laughs> I had to, you know, like an actor with maybe a lesser part, I, I had to do what I could and I ended up getting left with this unexpected um, interest, you know, continuing lifelong interest in the, um, the chill killer, the chilly killer mysteries of Ike Turner. On the other hand, Ella Fitzgerald, we have to talk about Ella Fitz, you and Ella Fitzgerald, her singing was perfect. 
but there was something about Ella that bothered you, the way in which she was not perfect. Exactly. You know, I, of course, first heard her, as everyone in my generation did, when I was when I was a girl. And the records were dreamy, and my parents spoke about them, and that voice is, um, is enchanting. But... As a little girl in the 50s and, you know, into the 60s, I was craving, you know, questing for glamour, for irreproachable, <laughs> flawless glamour. Um, I think all girls of all races and ethnicities were, there was a particular intensity if you were Black or another person of color because, you know, you were not sanctioned. Um, as a potentially beautiful, desirable creature by the larger culture. So, you know, the investment, for example, in Lena Horne, who was accepted, you know, as an icon of culture, was huge. Um, so Ella, Ella threw me off. Um, she was, you know, she was very, she was well spoken. She dressed well, but she was, she was a hefty matron. And the sweat. She was one of the only. She was the only woman I ever saw on television. I mean. Anyway, working so hard and so openly that sweat dripped down her face. Working class labor, one is, I, I associated sweat with, and manliness. You know? mm. What it says now, of course, is I brook no interference with my needs as a musician. You know? <laughs> and, but it, it rattled me. I was very involved in um, manners and proprieties, at least their surfaces. And, you know, very anxious about what you violated and what the cost was. Her greatest album was Ella in Berlin, 1960, which ends with her incredible performance of How High the Moon, song from the 40s, Somewhere There's Music. This super fast scat singing of hers draws on quotes from, you, you discovered 45 other songs, including to the tune of Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. She sings Sweat Gets In My Eyes. Ella drawing on 45 other songs in six minutes of singing is a little bit like what you do in this book. Oh, don't I wish. But, but you know, let's say it became a kind of um, model, at least for me. That's right. The, the reaching out, the um, almost excessiveness, and then, you know, the bringing it in um, to shape it and structure it. Yeah. Well, that's very nice. I love that. Um, I, uh, it, it, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, I guess it was a model. Isn't that funny that I haven't thought of it in that way when that chapter is so obsessed you know, with Ella? But yeah. Then we get to Bing Crosby, one of the whitest and one of the least sweaty people on earth. Mr. White Christmas, you call him. The most shocking sentence in your book is, I'm Bing Crosby. Why? You know, there again, it's a little bit like Ike Turner. There's a, 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 always a mystery to these um, non-licensed obsessions. Um, but I must also add one of the things that intrigued me. First of all, there's a kind of triumphant, traditional, mainstream, nothing is disturbing you know, the rules and regulations and myths of American culture. Utter power, white male power, uninhibited, uninterrupted, not having to labor, you know, to assert itself, being very cool. And that, that spectacle was fascinating. The other thing, though, that intrigued me, um, which Gary Giddens, of course, um, explores so well in his Bing Crosby work, he had begun as um, a 
pop jazz singer who worshipped Louis Armstrong and Big Spiderbeck and Ethel Waters. And you can hear, you know, again, it's that sense of the double and triple personalities. You hear that in the early work, you know, uh, with the Paul Whiteman band, with the, quote, rhythm boys. Then you watch these transformations you know, into Dear Hearts and Gentle People, into the Bob Hope movies, into a frightening kind of Mr. America. But that he could get away with all of it is what fascinated me. And that's what made me feel that it was in my version of um, claiming the license that a minstrel has. You put on that mask um, because they have something you want, but you drop it when it's over. You know, it's, it's, it's presuming. It's presuming. So I wanted to reverse that power dynamic. One of my favorite moments in the book comes when you're in eighth grade, 1960, when you see West Side Story, the stage play, with Cheetah Rivera singing, I want to live in America, you write, Latins are a deluxe signifier for Negroes on stage and screen, an alluring, enviable addition of non-white people with histories not wholly bound to the history of slavery in the United States. What a great sentence. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, and also with a range of looks that allowed them, you know, the lighter skin sometimes, the straighter hair, you know, the, well, I'm Mexican. Nah, <laughs> not that, now, that's been turned into by certain right-wing <laughs> quarters an insult. But in, but in the old days, ah, you know, that was, that was somewhere. It still had a place in the culture. The same was true if you think of, and I, which I think I did write about in Negroland, flower drum song. For example, the same and the king and I, Asians could um, occupy that same role from the point of view of blacks in those those movies. You know, a limited, controlled, and contained glamour, but glamour. Can we talk about black feminist anger modes? What you call your muses, your coaches, and your exemplars, which I guess starts with Nina Simone. You say, my friends and I were besotted with Nina Simone. You call her works in the 70s an oracle of our collective grief and fury. Wow. She was. And actually, interestingly enough, for male listeners too, you know, she, she really claimed that grief and fury. Having begun um, always with that extraordinary voice and power, but having begun much more in the kind of um, jazz American popular song mode. Uh, those first, you know, that first album, um, you know, her versions of I Loves You, Porgy, or um, Mood Indigo, uh, but always um, that intensity that, that implied, I'm controlling this song. You know, I'm, the song is not controlling me or offering me a vehicle to be um, enchanting. I'm controlling it. I'm interpreting it. I'm, I'm crafting it with my persona. And then, you know, she did move into this um, really almost epic um, political god and goddess-like um, presence. We, we didn't know at the time that she was, now we do. At the same time, you know, suffering hugely um, emotionally, um, bipolar, etc., which makes her to me all the more um, impressive, actually. Yeah. yeah, with an edge of tragedy um, because of all that pressure placed on her to be as a radical, even as a black radical exemplary 
um, as had been pressed on her <laughs> when she was more a jazz performer, but astonishing, you know, one of a kind. But you decide that you prefer for yourself what you call the counter-diva mode, where anger uses comic brevity. Tell us about that. Well, you know, we work with um, our limitations as well as our advantages. <laughs> so um, I recognize, particularly from my very early days dabbling in acting, you know, that I, I do better with certain modes of aggressive reserve. <laughs> um, and play underplaying something rather than overplaying it. So, you know, I one studies that. Um, and the, that whole chapter of female anger, which actually starts with adolescent, you know, modes. Um, you know, it really is all about how you make your way through um, all of these feminine styles, some blatantly angry, very few, um, in, the, in the early days, um, some very with angry subterfuge, you know, um, and you, you adapt what you can for your own circumstances, you know, my, oh, and also for your own aesthetics, you know, with my sister as, as uh, it was Martha Graham, you know, she was a modern dancer, but you know, when, when she saw Martha Graham pull um, a red cloth out of what were her innards <laughs> to simulate Medea, you know, she, what, you know, where else could you achieve that kind of power? You know, you internalize those, those things. And every movie of Betty Davis is for the same reason. Even when Betty lost, <laughs> her style won out. And her will, her will won out. At the very end of your book, you describe a meeting you attended of a group called Black Women for Wages for Housework. This is in the 70s. You quote a speaker who says, I'm tired. I'm tired for what my grandmama did. And you wrote in your diary that you were disdainful about what you called wearing the garb of ancestral suffering. This was 40-some years ago. What do you think about that today? I see what I was saying. I didn't want to, and it was something a lot of um, feminists and Black feminists in particular were examining. You know, how do we do justice to history without claiming that suffering and moving ahead with it, almost as if it were a theatrical, you know, garment to wear. I think I was harsh on that young woman, but I see um, what I was grappling with in myself uh, because I then go on to talk about my grandmother and, and the, the power and the um, pressure um, exerted by that power of the figure of the black grandmother, you know, <laughs> who can do everything and, and who represents um, all that is noble, but also was oppressive in that, in your history. So you are constantly feeling you must live that, up to that. It's just a really moving part of your book. I, you know, partly because I, I adored my grandmother, you know, <laughs> so that combination of of rapture and intimidation with um, an authority figure is, is an authority figure who has personal authority, but also has historical authority. That is formidable um, as a formative influence. So you have a wonderful list, which is actually a description of what, how your parents' world regarded Black popular culture. But I think it also applies to, to you in, in this book. You have used 
honored, disdained, studied, learned from, borrowed from, stolen from, been inspired by, gone slumming in this huge list of books and movies of music. It's the first book I know of to bring Willa gathered next to Ike Turner, and you overcame the voice that said, you can't do that. So all I can say to that is, wow, and thank you. <laughs> Let me just add that Willa and Ike are not in the same chapter. <laughs> in a habit. This larger landscape of the same book. Um, and yes, that passage you read, I believe that, you know, I was writing, I think, in that passage, as you say, about our relations to Black culture, but it's also what I'm doing with white culture, isn't it? Margot Jefferson's new book is Constructing a Nervous System, a Memoir. Margot, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. We spoke with Margot Jefferson about constructing a nervous system in April 2022. The book is out now in paperback. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music